Father, we do pray for the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would enable us, empower us today to better be salt of the earth and the light of the world, especially in a nation that is in decay and decline. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the door of the Staunton Herald Church in England is this inscription. In the year 1653, when all things sacred were throughout the nation either demolished or profaned, Sir Robert Shirley did found this church whose singular praise is to have the have done the best of things in the worst of times. You know, there's, there's crazy days in 1653 if you ever do a little work on the history there and what was going on in Great Britain as it descended into civil war. At that time, there were riots in the streets. There was religious conflicts and all kinds of religious controversy. And ultimately, the legislative branch revolted against the executive branch of government. And it was just a traumatic time. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, those times don't sound very different from ours today that we find ourselves in. I don't know how many of you watch the news and every once in a while just think, am I living in crazy town? What is going on in this country and I think it gets crazier and crazier right now by the minute. Politics have gone mad. The economy's out of control. Racism. Accusations of sedition. Crime at the highest levels of government. Social and political unrest. And sexual confusion and perversion unlike anything experienced in this country before. I just, I just grab my head sometimes and think, you know, this is just, you know, insane where we've come to this place. So if ever there was a time, another time in history in which the people of God need to rise up and do the best of things in the worst of times, then it's got to be these days we're living in. I want to talk to you a little bit about another time in history from the Bible when the people of God did the best of things in the worst of times and what we can learn from that time period and apply to this time period. The time period I'm talking about is 2,500 years ago. It's when Cyrus the Great of Persia overthrew the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. And Cyrus and subsequent kings of the new Medo-Persian dynasty, they released the Jewish people from their 70-year exile in Babylon, their 70-year captivity. They released them to go back to their homeland. And there were succession of waves of Jewish people returning uh, to Palestine. And what they did is each wave, when they came, they discovered their country was in ruins. The physical and 
the infrastructure had just totally crumbled. The economy had withered. The religious life was totally dead. And it was undoubtedly the worst of times. So what did they do? What we're going to see today is that they actually rose to the challenge in the midst of the worst of times and did the best of things. And what I want to see is what they did and how we can follow their example. Now, the first wave of returnees led by Zerubbabel, it languished at first when they came back, but then he finally jump-started a recovery and began in rebuilding the temple. They began once again to have the religious life of the people restored, the rhythms of their spiritual lives were regained. And the prophets Zechariah and Haggai also fueled a spiritual revival. And the temple was completed in 515 B.C. In 458 B.C., another group of Jews returned to Palestine under the leadership of the priest Ezra. And by that time, the Jews had, again, began to backslide, intermarried with pagan peoples, lost their spiritual center the time that that wave got there. So Ezra leads another revival, another recovery to get them back on track. And it was good for a while, but it also eventually stalled out. And finally, in 444 B.C., the Persian king at that time, his chief of staff, his name was Nehemiah. Nehemiah becomes aware of what's going on in his homeland, how it is really in dire straits, or as we'd say, the worst of times. But Nehemiah is going to lead this massive task force from Persia, the capital city, Susa, 900 miles back to Jerusalem to begin to bring it, to rebuild it. And uh, he finds when he gets there that this capital of David and Solomon is in devastation and chaos. But what Nehemiah does is he leads a group of people and it's just a space of 52 days. They manage to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem and bring it back to its former security and strength and even bring about a renewal spiritually. And as he's doing that, he sets up an administrative structure that the people will be able to handle and bring about restoration politically, economically, and religiously. And actually just kind of restart the spiritual life of Israel. Or to put it another way, in 444 B.C., when all things sacred throughout the nation were either demolished or profaned, Nehemiah and the people of God did the best of things. They rebuilt, refound Jerusalem. But I want to delve in there because I want to see how they did it. Because I believe there is a lesson for us as the people of God in these days and how what we need to do in the midst of a country that is in massive decay and decline. Nehemiah, again, was in a position of influence. He actually rose to the position in the Persian Empire as a Jewish man who's now the cupbearer 
to the Persian emperor Artaxerxes I, the most powerful man on the planet at that point. Now, as a cupbearer to the king, what his responsibility was obvious, he would actually taste the wine before the king, he'd hand it to the king for the king to drink, and that was to make sure the wine wasn't poisoned. So he would drink it first, and they would wait for a moment before he'd hand it over to the king, kind of guaranteeing that this wine was not poisoned. So he actually was, in a sense, a top security agent to the king. He was the king's primary confidant. He was the king's most trusted person in the kingdom. So he kind of actually ends up serving in a way, kind of like a chief of staff, as we have uh, for the president of the United States. Now, the book of Nehemiah opens when his brother, Hananiah, shows up and tells him the status of Jerusalem. Let's just pick it up there. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, <clears throat> Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So this, this news comes to him in his position of influence comes to him about the destroyed walls, the burned gates, the distress, and the shame of his people in Jerusalem. So when this news hits him, I mean, it's like a body blow to Nehemiah. I mean, he's not thinking, well, it's not, that has anything to do with me. I'm in good shape here. He's thinking, these are my people. This is my country. And he begins to weep and mourn and then goes from there to fasting and praying now, I think this leads us to the first step of how the people of God can do the best of things in the worst of times. And that is, it starts with prayer and fasting. It starts with prayer and fasting. Nehemiah knew the importance of starting with prayer and fasting and continuing with it. And here, here is just the, you know, the simple truth. We will not see a turnaround in this country if the people of God don't start praying more. It just won't happen. There is a spiritual battle that we have to start to fight in a greater way with prayer and fasting. And if you're not, if you haven't been praying for our country, our state, our city, its leaders on a regular basis, I invite you to come to one of our mini GHOP prayer meetings. GHOP stands for Grace House of Prayer that are going on all week long. On Thursdays at noon, we pray specifically for the country. Come join us to pray Thursdays at noon. But we need to see a level of prayer rise up in our country if we're going to see a change. So Nehemiah begins with prayer and fasting, and then he ends his prayer this way. Nehemiah 1, verse 11. He says, O oh Lord, I beseech you, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's talking about before the king. 
So he ends his prayer by asking God for help. He's asking God to grant him a successful conversation with the king of Persia. Why? That the king of Persia might actually assist in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That he might actually bring resources to bear. He might bring those resources to help get it done. So he's asking God, would you give me the favor I need for the king? And so Nehemiah prays this, and he prays in faith. He prays believing it. And we know he prays believing it because he's going ahead and acting like the prayer is going to get answered positively, and he gets things in order for that prayer to be answered. In other words, he's, he's ready to, as soon as the king says yes he's, and says, what do you need? He's already got the list of what he needs. He's praying, believing. He's expecting God to do something. He's ready for it when it comes. Let's see what happens next. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So up to that point, the king has never seen Nehemiah sad. So after four months of praying and waiting hour after hour, day after day, week after week, he now sensed, I believe from the, from the Lord, that it's time to take a step and talk to the king. And when he does this, we, don't, we can't really understand, not knowing a lot of the culture that was going on, but when he does this, he's taking a great risk to do this. What is the risk he's taking? Remember, he said he's never been sad before the king, and now he's sad. What's the risk? Let's look at verse 2, Nehemiah 2, verse 2. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah adds, then I was very much afraid. So he's purposely sad in the presence of the king, and he does it at great risk. Why? Why is that such a risk? Because he's the king's most trusted and loyal servant. Now, if he's not happy around the king, maybe the king can begin to think that he's disgruntled. Or maybe the king can wonder about his loyalty and whether or not he would stand against an assassination attempt. So if the king can no longer trust the cupbearer, the cupbearer has to go. But the cupbearer doesn't just go away. He knows way too much. He's the confidant. So he must be killed if the king doesn't trust him. So Nehemiah is taking a great risk to do what he did. It could cost him his life. But he believes, he's prayed for this, he believes, he senses God's timing. He's willing to take a risk. Why is he willing to risk his life? <clears throat> because there's such a great crisis, that's why. Because it is so important. It demands that he do something dramatic. And by the way, it's doing the best of things in the worst of times will require, on our part, some risk. And if the people of God aren't willing to step out and take any risk, then we're not going to see any changes in the flow. There's a risk to show up at a city council meeting and speak. There's a risk when you show up at the library board meeting and speak. You could be shouted down. You could be pushed around. You could be misquoted in the press. I know a lot about that part. Nehemiah resolved that it's time to do what's right. He's going to speak to the king, so he does. 
verse 3 in Nehemiah chapter 2. He said, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and his gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king says, what is your request? What do you need from me? And Nehemiah is ready. It's almost like he's got a list and he just pulls it out. He's ready. He knows exactly what he, what he needs. And by the way, we're praying for God to do something. We need to you know, prepare for the answer to come that we're praying for. Be prepared for it. Nehemiah is prepared for it. And so God comes through, and now they're ready to have the, they have the resources to begin this construction project. Let's pick it up. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5. And I said to the king, if it please the king, if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So he not only wants the resources, he wants the king to let his most trusted, confidant, leader, you know, servant to go and lead the charge. And the king agrees to this. I mean, this is a supernatural move of God. The king agrees, gives Nehemiah the resources that he can go and take a team and go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. So let's take note of the next step we see in Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. So I came to Jerusalem and, I, and was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal which I was riding. So I went out at night. So Nehemiah gets there and the first thing he does is he goes out by himself to inspect the walls, to find out the real status. He assesses the situation. He gathers the facts. That leads us to an important step in rebuilding, I think rebuilding your life personally, rebuilding a country. After prayer, make sure you get the facts. You start with prayer, but you got to make sure you get the facts. Without the facts, there's not going to be any good decisions made. So we need to get the facts. We should have the facts. The, the, the believers in Arlington, Texas, should have the facts about everyone who's running for city council, about everyone who's running for mayor, about, every, about everything that's going on with the library board and all the other boards. We should have the facts. And yet, I guarantee you, over 90% of Christians in the city don't know any of those facts. They don't know the facts. Election is coming up May 6th for Arlington. Most Christians don't even know there's an election coming in the city. There's one coming. And we need to have the facts. We need to have the facts on who the candidates are. We need to, and then we need to, you know, do the work, be inconvenienced to vote. Be inconvenienced to vote. And if Christians in the country keep worrying, you know, aren't willing to be inconvenienced, we'll never see a change. Be inconvenienced. Put it on your schedule. Say, we're going to vote. I'm going to find out what's going on and vote. And we happen to have a biblical citizenship group here at our church, one of our many ministries, and they are in the foyer this week and next week to answer any questions you have about what's at stake here, uh, this election, and the information there. So we need to get the facts. We need to know. All right, so what does Nehemiah do? Let's see, verse 15, chapter 2. So I went up at night by the ravine, inspected the wall. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest 
who did the work. Then, after he's got the facts, I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is, is desolate, its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. So Nehemiah said, look, I see that you guys see the trouble we're in. You see the mess. Jerusalem lies in ruins. People are in distress. So what does Nehemiah do at that point? He then cast a preferred vision. A preferred vision. He cast a vision of what it could be to the people. And that leads us to the third step. First step, prayer. Second step, get the facts. Third step is we have to see a preferred, a preferred vision of what it can be. What it can be in this city, what it can be in this country. A preferred vision. And I think we need to think a little differently. Not think about ourselves so much as what kind of country do we want to leave our grandchildren? Think about it in those terms. What kind of country do you want your grandchildren to live in? Do you want it to keep going the way it's going? Or do you, want, do you have a preferred vision? I want to see this happen. Since you have to have a preferred vision, and, and, and that's where it starts. And that's what Nehemiah does. He casts this preferred vision to the people, a vision of a secure Jerusalem with walls built, a vision of a, of a people with purpose and meaning again and a connection with each other and with God. He casts this vision. What's the people's response when they hear the vision? Nehemiah 2.18 and I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. I also, also about the king's words, which he spoke to me. Then they said, here's the people, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to do the good work. So they saw, yeah, we want that preferred vision. We're willing to work for it. And that's really what has to happen with the believers in this country is there has to be a preferred vision that they see, say, we want this kind of America. But then they've got to be willing to do what they say right here, put their hands to do the work. Or it won't happen. So I just want you to think a little bit about what is the present state of this country and what is the preferred vision? What is the preferred vision for this country? And then I want you to realize that it's going to take work to make that happen. And if the majority of Christians aren't willing to do that work, it won't happen. If the majority of Christians would rather watch TV then do that, then it just won't, it won't happen. So what's next? Well, the people do the work. Step four. So they pray, they get the facts, they see the preferred vision, and then they do the work. Verse 18 in Nehemiah 2. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So they got informed, they got involved, they did the work. Right now... <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, but right now in the city of Arlington, that up to May 15th, the city council is reviewing applications the coming months to fill annual vacancies in a host of committees in the city. Unity Council, Planning, Zoning, Parks, Recreation Board, uh, Citizens for Environmental Committee, Animal Service Center, Animal Service Center Board, Library Advisory Board, and many, many boards. And I got this sent to me from the city asking us if we got people that would help. This was sent to me two days ago, three days ago, asking. And so the city's asking, would you, we want people, we want believers to come help us, to get on these boards and do the work and make decisions. 
And so, again, there's going to be our biblical citizenship groups going to be in the foyer answering questions, but there's a lot of you could step up. I tell you, I've, I've sat in some, some, several of these different board meetings, and I guarantee you, if you're thinking I'm not qualified, you are way qualified. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you. And so we need, we need some believers on these boards to do the work. And let me say the next thing that Nehemiah finds is out as he steps up to do this and the people step up to do this is they run into resistance. There were enemies. Nehemiah 2.19. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? But this doesn't intimidate Nehemiah, not in the least. Verse 20, so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. It might have been a long time since the people of Jerusalem had somebody willing to stand up to the mockers, to stand up to them. And uh, but Nehemiah did. He stood up to him. And actually, as he stood up to him, his, his courage encouraged them, gave them courage to stand up. And I tell you, you, you there are enemies out there. And I, I have been misquoted so many times in, in the newspapers. And, and I've had sound bites taken and put on, on, on the news that, that they so arranged my sound bite with the things they said before and after that Made me say, maybe it's look like I said something I don't, really didn't say. I've gotten to the point now, I'll, I'll talk to the media, sure, I'm glad to talk to the media, but let's do live TV. Let's talk. Come on over, live TV. I'm not going to let you do any more sound bites and, uh, and give you a written statement because if they, just, if, you, if they just get your quote over the phone, they change that. And so, so send them a written, written quote. But you don't, we don't let them intimidate us. They will resist us. And there are some groups out there that are foul and vulgar and mean that will resist us. But we have to stand up for what is right. Nehemiah had the guts to do it, and the people had the guts to do it. And that leads to the fifth step that we see, we learn from them, that they stayed the course. For 52 days, they stayed the course. They prayed, they got the facts, they saw the preferred vision, they did the work, and they stayed the course. 52 days without, without, without a break. And it proved to be harder than any of them thought it would be. But they got it done. They did it. So it's going to be hard in the days to come. We're going to face resistance. It's going to feel like we're taking three steps forward and two steps back. That's how it's going to be. But if we persevere, we will, we will win. The believers of of God in this country, if they follow these steps, we would win. We'd, we'd change everything in this country. I want to tell you about another time in history before we close here. There's another time in history when the people of God could have done the best of things in the worst of times, but did not. It was the 1930s in Germany during the rise of Hitler. Hitler was coming into power but the, the, the word that was going on in the churches there in Germany when Hitler was rising to powers, the church should not get involved in politics. That was their position. 
The church should not get involved in politics. And so what happened? So Hitler rises to power. The church doesn't speak against it because they don't want to get involved in politics. So as they started loading the trains with Jews headed to death camps, some of these train tracks went right by churches while they were meeting on Sunday morning. And in order to not hear the cries of the Jewish people for help out of those trains headed to the gas chamber, what did the church do? You know what they did? They just sang louder. They just sang a little louder so they wouldn't hear the cries. Now, what's happened in America? You know, people try to figure out what's happened to the country. They go back to, well, 73 got Roe v. Wade, but then they go back to 62 and 63 with taking prayer out of schools and Bible reading out of schools. And I would say, no, you got to go back to 1954. Why? What happened in 1954? In 1954, then-Senator Lyndon Johnson introduced an amendment to the U.S. tax code prohibiting churches and any nonprofit organizations from taking a public stand on political candidates. And if anyone from a pulpit dared to endorse a candidate, the church's tax exemption would be repealed. So in 1954, that intimidation to churches began a move of churches backing away from being involved in anything political. Now, I think most of us would think, you know, if I lived in Germany in the 1930s as a Christian, I would have spoke up against Hitler. I think a lot of us think if I'd have lived in England during Wilberforce's, you know, fight to do away with the slave trade, I would have, I would have stood by him. But the question is, are we speaking out today with the issues that are no less important than those issues? We say, what issues? Well, right now the unborn are being, still being murdered. Their body parts are still being sold for profit. Very young children in schools are being fed evil ideas about sexuality, ideas which their young minds really aren't quite able to even cope with and which their parents object to. Older children are being so confused by sexual activists that they agree to have their bodies mutilated so they can never become the men or women that God really created them to be. You know, the other day we had a, a rooster running around in a field by our house. And I thought, I wonder if he's going to lay an egg. <laughs> we laugh because we know roosters don't lay eggs. And men can't have a womb. Men cannot menstruate, give birth, or lactate, or be a mother. And we do not need to join along in this illusion. Add to that the socialistic and communist, communist ideas that are being pushed everywhere, saying it's going to help the poor. It's never helped the poor. It's always hurt the poor. Doing God's will sometimes entails entering into the world of politics, not because we wish to, but because we have to. Because why? Because Jesus commanded us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. There's a Ugaritic proverb that was unearthed about 60 years ago, about 80 years ago now, I think. Simple proverb, it said, first men resist evil, then men 
endure evil, then men accept evil, then men embrace evil. Interesting slide. Today, most of the church has stopped resisting evil in this country. Most of the church has even gone beyond enduring it and accepting it. And so much of the church is embracing all these evil movements in the name of love. But we cannot, and we will not. It may be said of us one day that in the year 2023, in Arlington, Texas, when all things sacred were either demolished or profaned, that the people of Grace Community Church did the best of things in the worst of times. <laughs> Let's stand for prayer. Father, we do pray and ask for your hand to move to move upon us, to move through us, to move through your people in this country, Lord. We pray, Lord, for a turn, for a change. Lord, we pray for the, I pray for faith and courage to rise up in us all. And we'd walk in humility and love, but we would not be afraid. We would not be intimidated. And Lord, and we would not be lazy in our heart and spirit and body, but we would do the work and stay the course. Lord, we thank you for our lead team and biblical citizenship and all the work they're doing, trying to do for us to help inform us. Would you bless and strengthen them? And we pray for this upcoming election for in the city of Arlington. Lord, we ask you to raise up the right people in all these positions of authority for the good of your glory and for our good, for the good of our children and grandchildren. So Lord, even today, would you strengthen us and empower us and enable us to be salt of the earth the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.